Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with Aaron Lammert and Evan Ratliff, my co-hosts. This week, our guest is David Samuels. I spoke to David Samuels at some length, at podcast length. Uh, <laughs> Typical podcast length. <laughs> David, uh, if you are a fan of uh, Long Form Magazine stories and you don't follow bylines, you should go back and look because a lot of your favorite stories will have been written by David Samuels. Uh, and he's also just really thoughtful about uh, the craft of what he's doing and why he's doing it. So uh, he's a really engaging guy to talk to. I'm excited also because uh, he, he had a piece in a Harper's recently that um, hadn't been online that I thought was really awesome. And I'd been telling people about, and he has kindly uh, allowed us to reprint that on long form. So you can check, uh, check for that story. It's about zoos and a lot of other things. I think him and Evan talk about it. Um, yeah. It's called wild things. It's up on the site in the app right now. And another thing that I'm excited about is Tiny Letter, our sponsor. Tinyletter.com. Uh, Tinyletter.com is a great place if you want to uh, go make a simple, powerful, minimalist email newsletter. Uh, it's from the good people at MailChimp, and uh, I like what they do. Thanks, Tiny Letter. Here's David Simmons. piece came out or before I had read it I met you and you explained to me what it was about and I don't think that I could like recapture that and re-explain what it was about having read it and really loved it like how would you describe what that story was about um you know I think I'm from the generation that believed that everything that you love is bad for you um and not just bad for you in some you know gain five pounds kind of way but like cosmically bad for you and the planet that you live on um and so this was a place that i had this attraction to uh the zoo there's animals this is the bronx zoo yeah um i've been going there since i was a child took my own son there um I knew that inside of that there was, you know, there was a worm (laughs) and I felt it and I couldn't explain 
why I had this bad alienating kind of feeling uh, in a place where I should be feeling pleasure and, and, and interest. Um, and I was at a weird moment in my own life. I had a marriage that was coming apart. Um, and I knew all that. And yet, you know, I couldn't see that there was something wrong with animals in, in cages. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, then I sort of understood that part of it. And uh, I still was like, you know, are they being kept in really bad conditions? Is there a lockup somewhere where the animals are brought at night? And, and in fact, there was. Um, but that didn't really solve my <laughs> emotional uh, crisis either. And then, you know, I had this weird moment where, you know, when you do a story like this, there are these little things that are insignificant or would seem insignificant, but they become very important to you, the thing that you have to get. And for me, for some reason, it was the zoo library, mm-hmm. uh, partly because it was cold in the winter. And I was like, I really want to be in the zoo library because it'll be warm there. <laughs> um, but also, I was like, there's some reason why the ordinary request to see the library, people keep saying no. And so finally I gained access after about a year to the zoo library. And it was just a library. You know, they had books there and all the annual reports of the zoo dating back to 1895. And I'd sit there and read. And I was a little spooked out there too. And I realized it was in part because of this uh, oil portrait of a guy that kept kind of looking at me (laughs) from between these shelves. And he wasn't identified in any way, but there was something spooky about that. And then I was wondering who he was and why there was no nameplate on the portrait. And I asked the librarian, who was a kind of hipster-looking guy whose previous job had been working as a librarian in an actual prison. Um, and, <laughs> and so I was like, who is that? And he was like, oh, it's Madison Grant. And, and I was like, well, well, who's that? And I think he... He then had this look on his face like, oh, I said too much. You know, I wasn't supposed to say that. And he was like, oh, he was one of the people involved in the early days of the zoo. It was like this weird locution. Like he's trained not to talk, not to tell anyone about him. Yeah, like he was remembering the Madison Grant memo. Uh-huh. Do not utter the name Madison Grant. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, and then I started looking for, obviously for articles by Madison Grant or anything about him in these zoo books and and that had been approved by the zoo had been written by uh directors of the zoo in the past you know an in gathering of animals and these other kinds of you know lovely elusive titles and they also barely mentioned madison grant at all um and yet i looked him up and he seemed to be you know one of the leading conservationists in america in the early part of the 20th century he seemed to be quite a significant figure. And then as I got deeper into the zoo records, it became obvious to me that he was in fact the uh, founder of the zoo and the sort of animating force of its first 40 years. And so there was actually something really weird about the fact that uh, uh, there was no mention of him really (laughs) anywhere in the zoo. There was no Madison Grant monument. There was no identification on this portrait. He didn't appear in the traditional, you know, histories of the place. And, uh, you know, and then I got into the dark side of Madison Grant and the zoo, and it turns out that he was also 
in addition to being one of the fathers of conservation in America, he was also the uh, leading uh, proponent of uh, racial history, one of the leading racists in America, uh, the sort of organizing spirit behind all of these uh, really horrible miscegenation laws, laws barring immigrants from Eastern Europe. And, you know, the more I read, the worse and worse it got. It was like, not just that, but, you know, he also ends up being the uh, mentor and chief collaborator for a bunch of the Nazi scientists who go on to become the leading eugenic spirits of Hitler's Germany and who go on to, you know, uh, plan in some cases uh, the system of deportations and eventually mass murder that, that results in the Holocaust. And uh, he's really a horrible uh, human being who uh, really began uh, with the zoo and with animals and developed theories about animal populations and applied them to humans. And the more I thought about it, it became harder and harder to separate uh, what he created in the Bronx and the ideas behind it from this other set of ideas, which were really shocking and loathsome. And then, you know, I realized that that feeling of being creeped out that I <laughs> felt in this place had this much larger historical meaning and resonance and, and, and that I was right to feel that way. And it wasn't simply my personal life or the weather that was making me feel that way. Right. But so you, but you were already doing, you were going to write a story about the zoo or you were based on this, this sort of background anxiety that you felt at the zoo and everything else sort of unfolded from there. Do you feel like if there was no Madison Grant, there was an actually another story in that? You know, I tend to start with emotional impulses, feelings, uh, being drawn to something or being repelled by something, being made anxious by something. And I know how to gauge the intensity of those feelings. You know, this is a strong feeling. And then I have intellectual or analytical uh, guesses, you know, or paths I can go down that would seem maybe to provide a reason why I feel that way. Um, but it starts with a feeling, and I feel that those impulses have led me in productive directions in the past, and so I follow them, and I know that a narrative and a set of ideas that will animate that narrative or a set of tensions that will animate that narrative are going to be present in what I felt. But in some way, it's the attempt to analyze or understand that feeling, uh, where it comes from, why I feel that way, and what's interesting about it. And it's an internal process, but it's a thing that I can only get out of myself by immersing myself in a place and subject matter and whatever in enough depth that I know why it is that I felt that way. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that process, I feel like, is also, it, it's revealed in the story as well. I remember in that particular story, you talk about how you just wanted to get into the library. You were desperate to get in the library, and then you got in the library, and you have this line where you talk about, I just sort of wandered around from one set of books to another, not knowing why I had wanted to get in there. And is that, do you feel like that's a story-by-story story choice, or you do you feel like you have a presence in all of your stories and you like to kind of 
bring that to the surface a little bit. I feel in general, I write in something that I'd call the subjective third person in the sense that most of what I write is in the third person, but it's highly colored. It's very much the product of my sensibility. And I usually appear in those stories in a very light first person. You'll find, you know, at most one detail about me, I'm wearing a hat or a t-shirt or I went here or there. Um, But it's a sort of stick figure version of me that provides, you know, almost a sense of three-dimensional perspective for the landscape that I'm in more than it's, you know, that caught up with my actual life or biography or anything like that. Um, So story by story, that first-person character can be more or less robust, but it's, except when I write purely personal essays, which I probably do once every three or four years, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not overtly about me. I think that the landscape of all the pieces that I write is very, very personal. Um, and it's always coded as such, but it's more subtle and it's less literal. Mm-hmm. You know? It's sort of, it's almost, they're almost like reminders to the reader in some, at some points that they're kind of like on this particular path with you or chasing this particular anxiety or, you know, interest or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, I like to do two things when I write. I like to solve problems for myself. Why do I feel this way? Why am I drawn to this story? I like to give readers a sense of process. Um, How did I get from place to place and why am I making the connections that I am? Um, In order to give them a sense of what scenes and incidents mean to have a sense of them being necessary that are necessary parts of a journey that I'm on um, but I want the reader to share and you know the other thing is that I try to structure those journeys in a way that um, gets into the reader's head like you want to rewire their brain so that by the end, they feel like they've discovered something. It's not a heroic story in which I find the hidden diamond of the prisoner of Zenda or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's a process that educates the reader in a way of seeing and makes them feel smart and gives them tools and shows them how to ask questions and I feel like that's fair it's fair payment for the fact that I've been allowed to explore things that bother me and that I want to understand that are going on inside of me and I've been allowed to do that in front of other people out in the world um and that for whatever reason is the way I'm able to understand things about myself and my own life and If I had another better way of doing that, I think I'd do that because it's less time consuming (laughs) and it's less potentially embarrassing and, you know, uh, but I don't. Did some desire for that lead you into reporting and writing in the first place or is that incidental to, to how you got started? Maybe you should talk a little bit about how you got into this particular racket. Yeah, I never had the ambition of being a writer 
uh, per se. I didn't grow up with any of these magazines. Uh, I loved to read when I was a kid. Uh, I had a, I guess you'd call it a, a mixed skill set. I went to graduate school in history, but I couldn't sit still. I had a adventuresome cast to my nature, but I wasn't really prepared to join a intelligence agency or <laughs> anything like that. Um, I loved fiction and I loved the techniques of fiction, but I kept wanting to know what's real, mm-hmm. <laughs> what's not real, which is kind of fatal um, to writing good fiction. Um, and you know, it kind of happened by accident. Um, I discovered that there was this weird mixed form that called on my skills, that people paid money for it. Uh, I learned the names of these different magazines and that they were important. This is after you're out of college, after you have a, your, you have the history degree as well? No, I graduated from college. I was a humor writer in college. Um, Harvard Lampoon, right? Yeah. All my fellow Lampoon graduates went to Hollywood, which was the sensible thing to do because people got paid a lot of money to write jokes, and then you got a house with a pool. <laughs> um, you know, maybe I wasn't funny enough or... Um, did you think about doing that or try doing yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I actually had a tryout uh, offer at one point to write for Arsenio Hall. Um, <laughs> really? And to the extent I considered doing it, I ran up against the fact that I grew up in New York and I didn't know how to drive a car, um, <laughs> which seemed to present insurmountable difficulties in terms of getting to work uh, on time. And um, so I got hired to, to work for a publisher um, who was a very nice man uh, who published a Harvard Lampoon parody that I edited. And uh, his genre was that he uh, created magazines based on TV shows, um, a bunch of which were kind of successful. Um, and he kind of created this job for me where I could do whatever I wanted because he thought I was bright and liked having me around. But the problem was that, you know, I, I, I wasn't really familiar with uh, coming into work. Um, so <laughs> I'd show up, you know, I really, I found I worked better alone. And so I keep coming in later and later because that way I could stay in the office and work when there was no one there. And eventually I began showing up at, you know, 530 uh, at night, right when everybody left. And then I'd work from 530 to 1030. Um, and he didn't mind, but I just felt weird about it. I realized, like, I'm clearly not meant to work in an office. <laughs> I was like, why don't I just stay home? And and then after about six weeks, I walked into his office. I said, look, you know, this thing of working with other people isn't working for me too well. Really? <laughs> and, and no hard feelings, but you should you should hire my roommate who likes people better than me. And he did hire my roommate, and they were business partners for about 15 years. Really? Um, so... <laughs> I was I was right and then and then I was like what do you do in a room by yourself if you like going out and seeing people and then I started to concentrate really hard on how you make a living writing magazine articles cuz unlike fiction also it seemed like people wrote you a check for doing that and they gave you some money up front you know 
I want some money up front for my short story. Right. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. I'm going to go pen a short story. Just, right. It's going to be about here's the, my here, pitch. Here's, here's the idea. You know, I need a quarter of that up front plus expenses. And then I feel like this is true of, uh, of a lot of, of great, um, you know, long form magazine writers. So you didn't have a background in reporting journalism school or even really journalism per se. No. Um, the only journalism I had done, I guess I was a junior in college, uh, and uh, I was living with my girlfriend in Washington for the summer. And if you've ever lived in Washington in the summer, the thing you know is it's really hot sure. and, and humid, and it makes people crazy. And um, so, you know, we had a good but tempestuous relationship and and in Washington in the summer it got kind of worse and uh at one point she you know I think she spent the whole evening kind of yelling and crying and then eventually she threw an ashtray at my head and it sort of shattered (laughs) on the wall so she missed it didn't yeah you know I don't think she was a nice girl and I don't think she was intending to actually hit me with it but there was something about that that sort of punctuated the moment. I was just like, you know, I, I should leave Washington for a while, you know. Um, and so it happened that it was uh, 1988, and it was the summer of the Republican National Convention in, in New Orleans. And I had a roommate who was from New Orleans. Um, so I thought to myself, I can go there and cover this, and I can stay at his house, uh, and that'll get me out of D.C. until she cools down. <laughs> And uh, so I uh, imagined the place I'd do it for was the Washington City Paper, which was the alternative weekly in Washington. And the editor was a guy named Jack Schaefer who wrote this kind of funny stuff, and I felt like we'd get along. And so being a very mature you know, 20-year-old with a sense of how the world worked, I dressed up in a black leather jacket and sunglasses in the middle of August and went into his office and said, you know, hey, can I talk to Jack Schaefer? And this guy, they looked up at me kind of amused and were like, who are you? I'm like, well, you know, I want to talk to him about an article. <laughs> and the guy that was like, well, I'm Jack Schaefer. <laughs> you know, oh, really? what's, what's your article? And I was like, I want to go to the Republican convention and write about it. Kind of like, you know, like Hunter Thompson, but smarter. And he was like, well, have you ever heard of something called spec? And I was like, no, no, I don't know what that is. He was like, well, spec means you go down and do that. And you bring us back the article. And if it's good, we'll print it. And I was like, well, how much? And he was like, we'll pay you. 10 cents a word. And uh, at that point, I knew I was supposed to bargain for something. And I was like, well, how about my expenses? And he looked at me and was like, what expenses are you going to have? <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I'll have to rent a car and buy food. And he said, okay, we'll cover another $250 in expenses if you bring back receipts. And I was like, done. That's a deal. and <laughs> That's top-notch negotiating right there for a yeah, freelancer. No, no, I've, I've continued that level of <laughs> really hard-nosed attention to, to finances ever since. 
Um, but yeah, so so then I went down there not knowing any better. I went went down there with my friend Lizzie, and we stayed at my roommate's place. And I wrote this actually pretty funny for a twenty year old piece about the Republican National Convention. The you know my premise, my hunch was that if you wore a tuxedo, you could get in anywhere, um, and it turned out to be true. Uh, I ended up in the uh, private party for. George Bush right before he delivered his uh, acceptance speech at the convention, and it was me, the Bush family, Henry Kissinger, the governor of Illinois, and his wife, and they assumed I was someone's kid, And because why else was I wearing a tuxedo? And eventually, the only person smart enough to figure out I didn't belong there was the wife of the governor of Illinois. Uh, I guess his name was Jim Thompson. And his wife was a very nice lady. After about half an hour, took me aside and said, hi, you don't really belong here, do you? <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I don't, ma'am. Um, and she said, well, how about you and me sit here and talk for a little while? And then after we're finished talking, I'll introduce you to a few of my friends and then you'll leave. And I said, that, that sounds fine. Um, and had, did you at any point reveal that you were going to write something about it or that you were a reporter of some type? No. Hmm was participatory journalism. It was being a young Republican. And uh, and I came back and I gave it to Jack Schaefer and, you know, I've been eternally grateful for the fact that he actually read it and liked it and said, this is this is good. We'll, we'll print it. Here's your $400 and those $250 in expenses. And it ran on the cover of the Washington City paper the next week. And uh, then I felt like, hey, I can do this. It's It's easy. <laughs> There's something about the Washington City paper. I, I interviewed uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, and he had similarly was sort of had very little experience, and it was when David Carr was there, and he went in, and they gave him a chance, and I don't know if that's still true today, but uh, there's a lot of people that kind of came out of that. Orbit. No, it's, it's one of the sad things about that ecology having withered is that, you know, I think that's how good people learn to do something. You start by doing the thing you want to do at whatever level you can. There's this idea that you work your way up by writing captions and then capsule film reviews or whatever, and I don't think it works that way. I think you learn to master a form and you start by doing the thing you want to do, and at first you're not going to do it as well as you wish you could, and then you learn. And at the same time, I think there's so much dreck and there's so many people who uh, don't care about doing the thing well that you know when that kid walks in your door and they want to do the thing you say sure because it doesn't cost you anything and then when you look at it and there's actually some energy on the page like yeah it's bad but it's bad in a different way <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. it's bad in the way of someone who might eventually be good and then you're like okay right yeah well, the other thing about that that story is the thing that would be, oh, maybe I'm wrong, but today, I mean, it's so hard to do that story because the saturation of the coverage is 100 times at least what it was at that time. But I guess the question is, do you think you could still go get into anything with a tuxedo on, even today? Yeah, no, it was a more innocent time, right? Um, there... I remember when I left college, I eventually got a job as staff writer for Spin Magazine. Um, 
and you'd write a feature article and there'd be, you know, maybe two months later, there'd be five letters, four of which were from people in jail Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) wanting to give you the particulars of their case and occasionally with deep reads of what you'd actually written. Um, And uh, so it was a funny environment in the sense that on one hand, uh, there were relatively few venues. There were no blogs. There were no bloggers. There were only the small number of things that were ever published or accessible relative to the number of readers. Uh, there was a pretty strict division between writers and readers. Um, on the other hand, there wasn't that much of a sense of the audience. The audience was uh, passive or maybe holding the magazine upside down for all you knew. Um, and so in the end, you were writing very much for the people who edited the magazine, for your friends who had similar ambitions. And I think that it's easier to write well and to really refine a style when you're writing for a group of people that's pretty defined in your head and that's pretty small and that you can uh, define a shared aesthetic for or against Mm -hmm. um, rather than having the sense that your work is universally available and being read by everybody and immediately when you try to do some little thing 12 people will take it on themselves to rip that thing apart and uh, it's pretty hard to gain the degree of insulation necessary to create something and have confidence in that thing and fool with the valences of it there was a privacy in the act of creating and there was privacy in the communication between you and the reader. The reader was just sitting by themselves and they were having this communion with you through the text that was very private. They didn't have the sense that other people were necessarily having that same communion, let alone being able to gauge whether or not those other people liked the thing they were reading or thought it was dumb. Mm -hmm. Now you can't avoid, even as you consume a text and have that private connection in your head to this voice, you can't avoid all these other voices that are having opinions that the thing you're reading is brilliant, that the thing you're reading is terrible, that the thing you're reading is politically retrograde, like whatever the criticism is, you're already reading into this cloud Mm -hmm. of responses that are trying to contextualize and shape your response. And it's very hard not to be swayed by that if only because you're spending energy pushing it away from you like it's not private anymore and i miss that right or even take advantage of those things in some ways i mean now to hear you talk about it the way in which we put something on twitter and say oh this is a great story everyone should read it it's a long it's a great long story it it sort of mediates their experience of coming to it thinking like okay i'm supposed to like this it's long it's you know, it's kind of like, it's not like the thing arriving in the mail and then making your own choice about whether or not you hated it or it was brilliant. Yeah, and I want to say, you know, I, I'm i sure that the readers of parchment scrolls had specific experiences unique to parchment scrolls to untying them and, you know, unrolling the scroll and starting at the top. And it's not like I mean to just fetishize the experience of magazines and say that it's intrinsically better than the way people read something that's downloaded to a tablet. In fact, I'm very interested in that tablet reading experience because I think that it offers the 
possibility for a greater immersive private reading experience than is possible now in magazines. Um, but, and so I'm grateful for that, the prospect that there's a world where that kind of private experience is valued and that it's going to be extended um, through technology. It's not that technology is bad. Um, but that level of mediation uh, is a negative thing, and it screws with the dynamics of the thing that I learned how to do and that I love doing. And how did you develop a style? Do you feel like your style is, is shaped by the publications that you write for or that you, you independently sort of developed a style and then you have to shoehorn it into Harper's, you know, the New Yorker, the Atlantic? You know, um, I'm a Harper's writer. I'm a contributing editor at Harper's. I think that Harper's at its best epitomizes what I want to do, the kind of writing that I love in a way that other magazines don't. Um, but then on a craft level, on a professional level, there's many different things that I want to do, and they demand different venues. So Harper shaped my style completely, but as I developed more skill and more capacity, I realized that I couldn't simply write for Harper's alone, uh, although part of me always wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so there are these other venues, and so it's, it, you know, I, I compare it sometimes to, you know, you play guitar, but you don't have a band. Uh, and so it's your song, and you're playing your guitar, but then you're playing it with different people. And so you're going to play your song with uh, Neil Young and Crazy Horse behind you. It's going to sound like a Neil Young and Crazy Horse version of your song. Mm -hmm. um, you play that same thing with the New York Philharmonic behind you. It's going to sound very different. Um, magazines are like that. And then they give you these gifts, too. You know, Harper's is a magazine that defines itself. There are certain parameters in terms of things being voice-heavy. Uh, the magazine has a certain politics and aesthetics to it. But there isn't a Harper's voice. Um, it's defined by letting a bunch of different writers speak in their own voices about things. It's about individual subjective experience of mainly American reality. Um, a magazine like The New Yorker, you know, the saying with The New Yorker is the typeface makes you 15 IQ points smarter. Uh, and it's true because the typeface is the visual representation of the house style and all the innovations in story form, voice, texture, all the resources that the magazine brings to reporting and to fact-checking. Uh, people see your work in that typeface, and it makes it look better to them. And in many cases, you actually gain the benefits of how a New Yorker opening works. Uh, you gain them because your editor explains them. You gain them because you understand the form. And those forms have been our, you know... They represent the collective intelligence and work of hundreds of incredibly bright writers and editors who figured out how to do things or how to do specific things a certain way. And those solutions are really, really good. 
you have your battered guitar, but suddenly someone gives you like a great amp and they give you some, you know, effects box and you put this pedal on your <laughs> guitar and suddenly it sounds amazing. Someone else made that effects kit. Like someone else made that amp. Like you are playing your thing, but you're playing your thing through. It's mediated by a bunch of things that someone else invented that you're allowed to use, mm-hmm. you know, if you're in that place. And that's cool. That feels good. It beats playing in some shitty club, you know? Right, right, right. You're defined a little bit by by the venue. But you also, I mean, I was going through looking at stories that I wanted to talk about that you'd written. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of writers would say, like, I'm a general generalist. You know, I, I approach any topic. But you're... You you definitely move between uh, just crime to sort of like a lot of cultural kind of not culture like art culture although some of that too but more sort of like American society pieces and then to politics like pretty hardcore politics profile of Condoleezza Rice kind of politics and do you think of it well let me ask you this way when when your collection came out a few years ago. I feel like there was a lot of talk around what it was that you were writing about in all these stories. Like, did you think of it as I'm on the beat of American, you know, disaffected America in some way or the American dream or something like that? Or do you, is it more a mercenary approach where it's sort of, all right, this is the thing I'm interested in. This is where I want to place it. This is how much money I need to make on it. Go. You know, um, I, it sounds corny, but I have always thought of myself as writing about the American dream. Um, And I guess the psychological tensions and absurdities and the dark places in that. Um, And that has been my primary subject. Um, I think that's shaped by the fact that I'm a first generation American. It's shaped by the fact that I went to graduate school in American history. It's shaped by the fact that I came up at Harper's and that was really what they did there then. Um, you know, in the last five or six years, I've written a bunch of stories that are set other places, uh, in the world. Um, you know, Yasser Arafat, uh, Balkan Jewel Thieves. I want to talk about that one. Uh, Japanese uh, internet-based suicide cults. And I think that I've gone there because America's had 10 years of being present in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been a time of you know, not just globalization, wars, uh, all these ways in which America's interacting with the rest of the world and in which these parts of the American psyche that I was exploring at home uh, were being looked at and in some cases shot at (laughs) by people who don't understand us um, the way we understand ourselves. And So going to other places and understanding people and psyches and cultures that are structured very differently than ours was, 
you know, a different kind of lens to understand America and to understand what other people see when they look at us and how we understand or misperceive ourselves at home and also in the eyes of other people. Um, so I think of it as a continuous line, even though in some places the subjects have seemed pretty far afield from, you know, America. And I, I'd say, you know, the other consistent preoccupation has been the fragility and doubleness of people's selves, the self as a narrative construction and the lying and the deception uh, of oneself and others. Uh, I think that that is a storyline that's very linked to my sense of America and Americans. Um, what's interesting about this country, what's unique about it, what's very dangerous about it. Um, and so in a way it's looking at certain American themes and how they play out in individual lives. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I do want to talk about the jewel thief story because, uh, partly I'm interested in, I think I told you this, uh, at one point that I was actually working on that story. Mm -hmm. Well, not, I was working on pitching that story is what I was working Mm -hmm. on and had spent really months calling people and talking to the Monaco police. And then they sent me some files and CD-ROM and, but they just ended up being clips. And I was sort of just starting to think, well, how can I get, it was so big, it was so sprawling. And then your piece came out and I realized that's how I would have probably tried to do it. But just how do you sit down and look at something like that and say, okay, where do I start with this? Um, So as happens a lot, you know, this started to percolate in my head because I went to a bunch of different places, uh, Paris, Tokyo, London, for other reasons, assignments, personal reasons. And in each place, there had been a big jewelry heist. And at some point, you just notice that, and you're like, whoa, that's weird. And the details of these heists are kind of interesting and funny, except there's one everywhere. What's going on, Mm -hmm. you know? I ended up writing my piece about the family that demolished buildings, invented implosion for Harper's the same way. I kept traveling, and I'd go to a hotel room at night and turn on the TV, and there was local news footage of a big building being imploded or the stadium (laughs) being imploded. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) who's doing that? And then in that case, I found out it was one family. They're doing all of them. They were doing all of them, or virtually all of them. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Then it turned out that... uh, Someone at Harper's, it might have even been someone who knew Ellen Rosenbush's husband or something like that, actually had gone to art school (laughs) with one of the members of that family. And the jewelry thief thing was the same thing. Like, I saw a bunch of these stories, and I started digging a little, and then I found these clips where Interpol or someone was attributing these robberies to something called the Pink Panthers. And... I was like, wait a minute. There's one group of people who are doing all this and they're called the Pink Panthers? I was like, sold. It's a movie. <laughs> yeah. You know. And then it was a matter of uh, going and convincing my, you know, very wonderful and talented and patient editor at the New Yorker, Daniel Zaleski, that I could actually deliver something unique about this. And that's the moment where you just look someone in the eye and you're like, yeah, no, I'll be able to get an interview 
with one of those guys because I have connections. And in that moment, someone either wants to believe that sentence or they don't. They forced you to say it. (laughs) There's obviously some frame in which the sentence is true. It's also a sentence that you don't necessarily want someone to push too hard on. And then that's where the trust comes in. And someone says, okay, well, if you're telling me that, then it's probably true enough that you can deliver on it. And if you don't, you're going to feel really bad and you're going to make it happen somehow. And you tend to be able to do that. So either way, that's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And then it's simply, I'd been in the Balkans before during the Bosnian war. I did freelance reporting for Harper's um, and one or two other places from there. And so I was familiar enough with the places these guys were ostensibly from. And I saw the recent historical context that would produce guys like that. And um, I started traveling and, you know, I made a connection through a friend in Paris to some Serbs who were associated with uh, these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you did have connections. Yeah. But I, I didn't know what they would I have. You know, you yeah. all you always have connections of some kind. The yeah, question yeah. is, are they going to deliver what you say they'll deliver? <laughs> and the answer is you don't know until you try. And so uh, I eventually met these guys who were one step away from these people. They knew them or seemed to. Um, and they liked me enough that they gave me phone numbers and one thing led to another and eventually I was in Montenegro and eventually a person came to see me who was going to bring me to one of these guys and I went with that person into the mountains and I was searched in an intrusive way for (laughs) (laughs) weapons or how intrusive you know um he was uh former commando was armed and he felt every part of my body and made me remove articles of clothing to make sure that I wasn't carrying anything that I claimed I wouldn't be carrying. And then I met a very nice man at a restaurant (laughs) and we had a a talk about his business. Um, And so eventually I did touch the thing that I wanted to touch, mm-hmm. you know, which was to meet one of these guys and talk about who they were and where they came from. And in a way, it's kind of an authenticating detail. I told, I saved that part for the last scene because it seemed like the one thing I could do that would top what I had already done in the piece. And, you know, it didn't change my understanding. I understood this stuff already. I mean, there were some specific details about Italy and this and that that he explained that were new to me. Um, But it's the proof that the path that you were on was right Mm -hmm. and your understandings were right. And there's a movement through space where you meet people and you think about stuff and your conception of the story changes and on one hand, that's an understanding that's in your head. It's 
something you've put together because of your own training and your own interests and your own psyche. But the question is, you know, and it's the wonderful thing about this medium is at once it's intensely personal. On the other hand, at the end of that journey, it has to lock into reality from some angle and that fit has to be exact. And if it doesn't happen, then the piece falls apart. It's your own fantasy. It's a bunch of rhetoric and it doesn't feel real. And there's that moment where it clicks. There's that final piece that clicks into place. That's the confirmation for you. And, you know, often depending on how you structure a narrative for the reader that you were right. And this thing that is very subjective and is driven by very internal kinds of processes is honest because it does map on to the world in a verifiable way. And so that was just the moment I knew that I had gotten something about this story right. Uh, I knew that I had gotten it right because otherwise I wouldn't have gotten through all these layers of people to meet this man because there was too much suspicion and vetting Mm -hmm. that was going on along the way. Um, And it was also right because the person he was was the person that I had hoped to find, and yet the specific details of his life were all new mm-hmm. to me. Um, and it, I, I love those moments. They're, they're, you know, confirmations of the power of imagination and their rewards for doing inner kinds of work and their rewards for just the slog of reporting and being in places that aren't your home and sometimes don't feel comfortable. Um, And how long was that reporting process? You know, for that story, I think that process was five months. And are you... Are you a person that gets very protective slash competitive with an idea like that once you have it in? Because I remember the Times at some point, probably during your reporting process, because it was when I was looking into it, the Times ran a story. I don't know, it wasn't like front page story or anything, but they ran a story about a London heist and it, it generated a little bit of interest. And I remember thinking, well, I don't know if I should even pursue this anymore, but do you have those, do you sort of feel like it's yours and you own it and you're going to lose it or? You know, again, I don't have a background as a reporter, although I think I've learned to be a good reporter. And, you know, I do have a background in writing history. And so I have a sense of real fidelity to fact and I have a strong sense you know, I have a epistemological sense of what a fact is, which, you know, allows me to do different things. But I also have, in the end, a very strong sense of responsibility to the records that there are and a sense of transparency about the process by which I discover stuff. Um, and I have faith in 
that process um, that it's going to yield something unique that could only come from me. Um, and so I really don't care if one million other people have written articles about Barack Obama, and I don't care if no one else has ever written about the Bronx Zoo. My job is to follow my process and work out my own emotional responses to things and really figure them out and analyze them and then map them onto a reality, which in part is being created by my own subjectivity and by my attempt to solve problems by myself, but which also has to be transparent to other people so that they can go there and see that it looks like that and meet those people and be like, that is the guy. And that tension between my inner life and my very specific subjectivity and the need for those things to be legible, I won't say to an objective observer, but to lots of other people who are also subjective observers, right? To see mm -hmm. and feel the same thing that I felt or at least recognize why a person like me would have that response to it um, is the point of the work. You know, that said, uh, do I feel pressure sometimes depending on the magazine I'm writing for that I'm going to lose a story? You know, I think that in practice it kind of works the other way, which is that it's, uh, I think to myself, how do I use this to goose them into publishing the thing faster or giving me more space? <laughs> you know, I sort of, I do have a very mercenary approach to that. I, it's not that I'm competitive in, in, in the sense of feeling someone's going to steal my story because they can't. You're describing something that can't be scooped. Yeah, it's me. Well, thanks for doing this. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our show's edited by Lauren Kirchner. If you want to read any of the articles that Evan and David were just talking about, they're all in the show notes at longform.org slash podcast. Thanks very much to our sponsor, tinyletter.com. Go send yourself a newsletter and come back next week. We'll have a new episode. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.